Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. This is Money Talk on Tuesday the 10th of October. We're back after yesterday's typhoon and black rain in Hong Kong, which shut down the city for a while. Nice to be with you again, and thank you for downloading Money Talk and making it one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, oil prices surged Monday as markets opened for the first time since the Israel-Hamas war erupted over the weekend. Global benchmark Brent jumped 4.2% higher at $88.15 in US trading. Oil prices are now up 27% over the last three months, posing a challenge for the Fed. Rising oil prices could add to already high global inflationary pressures. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who is in China leading a bipartisan group of lawmakers to the country, criticised Beijing's stance on the Israel-Hamas conflict. He told President Xi Jinping in a meeting that he was disappointed by the foreign minister's statement, showing no sympathy or support for the Israeli people during these tragedies. President Xi said how China and the United States get along with each other in the face of a world of change and turmoil will determine the future and destiny of mankind. He told Mr Schumer, I've said many times that we have 1,000 reasons to improve China-US relations, but not one reason to ruin them. Tourism revenue from China's Golden Week holiday surged year on year but was only slightly above its pre-COVID level. 826 million people travelled over the eight-day holiday, representing a 71% increase from last year, and spending jumped nearly 130% year-on-year. But domestic tourism revenue for the eight-day holiday period only increased by 1.5% from the comparable level in 2019, and spending per tourist is still 2% below the 2019 level. A group of offshore creditors of China Evergrande have criticised what they call Evergrande's botched efforts to obtain PRC regulatory approval for debt restructuring, which they said had left investors in the dark. The group said the current base case was that the company would be liquidated at a winding up hearing in Hong Kong at the end of the month, and that this will likely lead to the uncontrolled collapse of the group. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, which is where you'll also find my daily Asian business and finance newsletter. On Wall Street Monday, investors shook off rising oil prices from the war and focused instead on dovish commentary from two Fed officials. US stocks turned higher in afternoon trade as energy stocks advanced in tandem with the rise in oil prices. The S&P 500 gained 0.6%, ending at 4,336. The index was down 0.6% at the low of the session. The Dow climbed 197 points, or 0.6%, to 33,605, recovering from a loss of 154 points earlier in the day. The Nasdaq added 0.4%, ending at 13,484. The Nasdaq pulled back as much as 1.2% before recovering. The bond market was closed Monday for Columbus Day, but bond ETFs suggest that yields will fall once fixed income trading resumes on Tuesday. That's partly because Philip Jefferson 
Jackson. The Fed's second-in-command doubled down on the need for the central bank to proceed carefully with its forthcoming rate decisions, emphasising that it would incorporate rising Treasury yields into its assessment of whether tighter monetary policy is necessary. And in separate comments, Dallas Fed President Laurie Logan went so far as to say that the recent move in financial conditions could offset the need for the central bank to take further action. The dovish commentary from those two Fed officials helped the US dollar index give up early gains Monday and end the day unchanged against a basket of peers at 106.07, snapping a three-day decline. Trading in mainland China markets reopened Monday following the Golden Week holiday, but in Hong Kong, the morning session was cancelled due to Typhoon Koinu and a black rainstorm warning. Markets in Japan, South Korea and Taiwan were closed for national holidays. Chinese stocks declined as they reopened after the holiday that saw disappointing levels of spending and travel. The Shanghai Composite that fell below the 3,100 level, falling 0.4% to close at 3,097 travel and leisure related stocks declined airlines including Air China and China Southern dropped around 2% in Shanghai while Utor Group plunged over 9% in Shenzhen Shares of Chinese movie companies slumped. China's box office revenue in the Golden Week holiday slid 38% from the 2019 level, according to the China Film Administration. In Hong Kong, the observatory lifted the T8 typhoon signal at 11.40am, which meant the afternoon session started an hour later than normal at 2pm. The Hang Seng Index ended the shortened session 31 points higher, that's 0.2%, at 17,517. Futures markets are pointing to a small gap for the Hang Seng at the open this morning of about 55 points, that's a third of a percent, should see the index start trading at around about 17,570 level. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this still wet and windy Tuesday morning, let's welcome our guests. We have with us Mark Michelson, who is chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Uh, Good morning. And also with us is the good doctor, Dr. Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Are you used to being called doctor yet, Richard? No, not really. I keep thinking somebody's talking to my father. But it's a nice title to have. And over in, our U- over in the US, in Washington, D.C. this morning, is our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Ward. Always good to talk to you on the Tuesday, Barry. Yes, thank you very much. Good morning. And let's start in the U.S. because we weren't here yesterday. We didn't have a chance to talk about the jobs um, report, which uh, jobs growth unexpectedly surged in September to almost double what was expected, providing more evidence of America's robust labor market. Non-farm payrolls increased by 336,000 for the month. That's more than 100,000 higher than the previous month, far better than what economists were estimating. They were saying about 170,000. And the increase was the largest since January. Leisure and hospitality led the job growth. Wage increases, however, were softer than expected. Average hourly earnings rose 0.2% for the month, which matched August's figure and slightly below economists' estimates estimates for 0.3%. On an annual basis, wages rose 4.2%. That's the lowest since June 2021. The unemployment rate, that was 3.8%, in line with August's figure, slightly higher than the forecast of 3.7%. 
And in addition to September's figures, worth noting that the previous two months also saw substantial upward revisions. August gains uh, was 40,000 jobs were added to the original estimate, while July uh, jumped to 236,000 from the original estimate of 157,000. So combined, the two months were 119,000 jobs higher than previously reported. Barry, every time we talk about these jobs data every month, it's the same story, isn't it? Astonishing um, gains, better than what economists are expecting, revisions up to previous gains as well. It just seems nothing is stopping the jobs market in the U.S. So far, that is correct. And it is certainly a surprise. All of those highly paid people, like Richard, who... uh, you had not predicted a recession, had you, Richard? Not, not early, but anyway, so many did. And they really are not looking good now because the economy does keep perking along at a pretty good pace. I think, however, having been up in New York last week for an interest rate conference with Jim Grant's group, there's a lot of fear. Interest rates are going to slow the economy. So if it didn't happen this past month, it's not happening right now. It's going to happen. And then add in all of this uncertainty from this Israel-Hamas war, and you've got a delicate situation. Mark, I mean, it's just um, astonishing where these jobs are coming from. A lot of them do seem to be in leisure and hospitality, That's uh, which I presume are sort of lower-paying um, jobs. But nevertheless, it still is um, a pretty substantial gain, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, it's encouraging, but I think I have the same same uh, concerns that Barry just just mentioned. Be interesting to hear what what Richard said as well. Uh, you know, several major, several well-known economists, Mohammed El Arian, uh, and 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 others have suggested that we we still have some of the issues that Barry has pointed out. And of course, for us, for for our members, it means everything. And I and I think the ramifications of the is the Israel uh, Hamas war. Is going to are, are things we can't predict at this point, but it's certainly going to affect the economy overall. Not just oil prices, not just that. Of course, Ukraine aid, all sorts of things that 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 factor into both the economy and the the political situation. So we're in really uncharted area right now. Richard, let's hear it from you directly. Are you are you predicting a recession for the for the U.S. Well, it's difficult to say how it can't come, but I think where we've all been surprised is that it's been delayed, and it's been delayed by various issues. One is a lot of money put into the economy during COVID. Two is if you look at the Inflation uh, Reduction Act, which uh, Biden uh, enacted last year, which put, you know, you're you're talking in the the level of trillions into the economy. Hmm. You know, the economy has been supported by an enormous amount of liquidity, uh, and I think that that's kept things going. But, you know, the odd thing is that we're in a situation in the U.S. where if you just look at the numbers, it's a completely Goldilocks scenario. You've got uh, inflation at, what, 3 4%, which, you know, we can handle. You've got interest rates now 4 5%, which, let's face it, we should be able to handle. Um, uh, and and companies that may be suffering from that are are just managing to hang on because you know they do have uh, a lot of benefit on on the revenue line, um, and you've got uh, pretty well full employment. So uh, this is the kind of economy you would really want to be in. Of course, 
we're looking at a snapshot now. And the question is, what is it going to look like in the future when that money starts running through the system? Uh, when the rest of the world is definitely slowing down. So it does look as if we're in a slow moving train wreck, but it's really not happening yet. Richard, you're an economic historian. Um, what's interesting is monetarism is making a comeback, isn't it? If you're a fan of Milton Friedman, who basically says inflation is purely a function of money supply, for, for years that theory went out of favour. But it's back with a vengeance at the moment, isn't it? Because you would have been absolutely spot on predicting um, just how much uh, all these, uh, all the stimulus from the government added to the monetary, uh, the money supply, and hence drove inflation higher. And then at the beginning of the year, we saw money supply collapse, and in turn, we've seen inflation come down with it. Yes, I, I had a very good lunch with John Greenwood, who, uh, as many people will know, is the father of the Hong Kong dollar peg. Uh, when I was in London, and he pointed out that in fact interest rates are really a resultant uh, of money supply. Um, and his view is money supply is coming down, ergo inflation is uh, coming down. Whether that means we go off to the races, because there are a lot of zombie companies out there that have relied on 1% and 2% interest rates, I think is another matter. Uh, and I think where my concern is that uh, there will be companies uh, going to the wall because interest rates are high and we do have... Um, uh, this support at the moment of the liquidity that cannot last forever. Um, so as I was saying a moment ago, I, I think that, yes, uh, people are looking a lot more at money supply uh, as an issue, uh, and it looks as if that's likely to shrink. Mm -hmm. Barry, this is going to be the key thing, isn't it, now? I mean, a lot of companies have locked in borrowing costs at pretty low rates. However, at some point, um, they're going to have to refinance. And, and that point is maybe coming soon. And the governments have got the same yes. problem, having to refinance at much, much higher rates, above 5%. Yes. And I think that uh, Richard's got it right. Look, uh, it goes along well now, but this can't go on forever. It really cannot. And uh, when you find, for example, a rather sharp rise in interest rates over the last two weeks and then maybe richard could tell us a little bit more about this no longer inverted yield curve and some say that's a recession warning ahead and then you take the political uncertainties then you take the deadlock in washington you know the congress can't do anything because the house doesn't have a speaker and the americans want to shovel out more money not only for Ukraine, but now for additional aid for Israel. There's a lot of uncertainties, but the big one has to be borrowing costs, just as was mentioned. Those companies are going to have to finance now at very high rates. And as Mohammed Al Aryan, who's got a very good predictability on this, he was the person who coined the term new normal almost 20 years ago. Something could break. And I think... Uh, you know, for example, one of the speakers last week at this Jim Grant interest rate conference said it's going to be Japan, because if that interest, if the yen goes through 150 towards 155, that'll be the break because that'll put so much pressure on China. I don't know any of these things, but I do think that there's a good case for not being ebullient and being rather cautious. Things are more delicate now than they were a month ago. I'm not quite so bearish, uh, I guess. I think that, yes, we are looking at uh, uh, at a slow decline, but at the moment it is a slow decline. And 
You're quite right, Barry. When things fall out of bed, they fall very sharply and very severely. But you need a trigger for that. And I think there was a case to say Ukraine was going to be a trigger for that. You know, just when we're seeing oil prices up and commodity prices up and things. That hasn't really happened and the world has adjusted to it. Um, is Israel likely to be a trigger? Well, probably not at the moment, unless we see some enormous contagion uh, around the world geopolitically. That doesn't seem to be the case at the moment. Um, so we're still looking for out there for that trigger. And I'm not sure that all of the figures are quite as critical yet to sort of see that. So I would still go along uh, with the situation that we're seeing some unexpected strength in, in economies and markets. Um, politicians are pretty happy about that. Uh, they've actually pushed it because there's a lot more money in the market. Um, and I think that, you, you know, the day when that uh, collapse comes, the trigger comes, has really been pushed out as a result of that. Richard, let me ask you to put your historian hat on again, this time for the markets, because I, I said a couple of times last week, I've seen this before. This reminds me of 1987. Um, over the summer of 1987, there was a very sharp rise in bond yields. There was a lot of turmoil in the currency markets, and then we know how that all ended um, in October um, 1987. I'm wondering, do you see any similarities? Now, don't deny you wasn't around in 1987. I know you were. <laughs> were there any similarities? No, I remember it. I remember, I remember uh, 97 well, and actually 87 well, too, you know, because um, as a stockbroker, you know, when markets go down, you... Uh, uh, you take clients out of the shares that you put them in earlier uh, and get two commissions. Um, so crashes are actually very good uh, for the uh, for the stock market. Um, no, my uh, general feeling is that there's the old phrase in investment, which is this time it's different. Um, but there's also the phrase history repeats itself, or if it doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. You know, the, the problems that we have in the market and looking what happened uh, historically is they often do follow the same route but they often don't follow the same route and it can change depending on one or two small circumstances um, so it is very difficult to say that it happened this way last time and now it's happening this way this time uh, and i did have to smile at um, some of the comments that have come out recently saying oh the uh, the the uh, yield curve is becoming inverted, therefore we're going to have a recession. Or the yield curve stopping inverted, therefore we're going to have a recession. You know, I think right. one of the things you learn in investment is that it's very, very difficult to forecast. We can't predict, and it's very difficult to forecast because we don't know the future. And we try and do it by looking at elements of the past, and that's extremely valuable. But I think we also have to keep in the back of our mind the fact that um, you know, sometimes it is different, mm. um, but it's also foolish to pretend it's going to be so different uh, that we're following our own route. Mm. Very, very good. Uh, very good analysis there. I'm interested, interested in the thoughts on the 1987 uh, comparison. Mark, I just want to get back to those job numbers. If, if you delve into them. Um, there are signs that the job market actually is cooling, isn't it? Because um, these job numbers are always seasonally adjusted. If you take out the adjustments and look just straight at raw, unadjusted numbers, uh, the number of jobs is actually down quite sharply. And what's also more interesting is there's been a big drop in full-time employment over the last three months, full-time employment in the United States 
down 692,000. Whereas part-time employment has jumped by 1.2 million since June. It seems to suggest there um, that, first of all, there is a weakening of the, of the job market, but also maybe people are taking two, two or three jobs at the moment, doing part-time work as, as well as full-time work or giving up full-time work for, for part-time work. Sounds like a lot of people I know, but <laughs> I think you're right. But in terms of the on-the-ground, how this is affecting companies and, and the issues that Richard and and Barry have raised as well. Many of them have have uh, have have slowed slowed investment. Have been extremely cautious. This is on Asia as well. Part of it has to do, of course, with the China economy and that it hasn't performed at levels that they had hoped it would. But at the same time, I think they're being affected by those very currents that you mentioned and worried about what might happen around around the corner. Even though the uh, the short term news seems reasonably reasonably encouraging longer term or medium term it, it doesn't so much i think many companies are reacting to that already and it's affecting businesses out here so they're not sh- they're getting cross signals both both domestic both in the markets in asia and then from their from their headquarters as well so it's uh, peter i would simply add to what what mark has said that the united states labor market remains terribly distorted for various reasons, not least of which is all the money that's in the economy. I was hearing figures of $12 trillion of stimulus over the last four years, if you look at the Fed and of what's come from the Congress. So then add work from home. So you've got people Mm -hmm. who have money, and then you've got people who don't feel the need to work on that account. And then you've got really all of the uncertainties that come with this high interest rate environment. I think that it remains a distorted economy, but mostly the jobs market. Actually, Barry, that's a really useful comment, because what I noticed when I was in the UK is how many people don't really care if interest rates go up or inflation goes up or any of these things, because uh, many of them are sitting on fat pensions, final salary pensions, um, many of them have lots of savings because they've had great jobs. Uh, and you can probably look at maybe 30% of the population. Um, I, I was quite surprised. You know, you go into a, a little country coffee shop on a Tuesday lunchtime and it's full. It's full of old people um, because there's a big chunk of the population that actually doesn't really care. And I think that too is fairly fragile because. There's also a very large chunk of the population, young people, who are in jobs that they feel aren't quite as um, uh, maybe productive as they think their their talents survive, uh, where salaries are very low, where they're struggling with high interest rates and high mortgages and high costs for children. Um, And I think that that is actually quite a fragile situation. Okay, well, let's switch our attention to China. Um, Everyone's coming back from the Golden Week holiday. Tourism revenue from the Golden Week holiday surged year on year, but was only slightly above its pre-COVID level, suggesting China's overall sluggish economic growth and uncertain consumer spending outlook proved to be a bit of a headwind. Travel and spending surged compared with 2022 when large parts of China were in lockdown. 826 million people travelled over the eight-day holiday. That's a 71% increase from last year. Spending jumped nearly 130%. Domestic tourism revenue uh, reached the equivalent of about 103 billion US dollars. 
for the eight-day period. That's an increase of about 1.5% from the comparable level in 2019. Those figures come from the country's tourism ministry. The numbers did fall short of the ministry's own forecast of just under 900 million travellers, spending more than 780 billion yuan, spending per tourist still 2% below the 2019 level. Uh, Richard, I suppose mixed news really, isn't isn't it there? I mean, it's uh, it's creeping up, um, certainly better than it was, but still, um, when you compare it to, say, three or four years ago, uh, rather sluggish. Yes, I, I think I think Mark will probably have a lot um, to say on this, but my uh, initial reaction uh, really is that it follows the trend that we've seen through the year. We did think China would have a, a big bounce after COVID. It hasn't. Um, I think there's a big confidence issue there, and confidence takes time to build. And um, in some ways, I thought that the fact that the numbers were just about approaching pre-COVID levels weren't too bad. Uh, but the fact that they haven't bounced, I think, reflects what we've seen throughout the, the, the previous part of the year. I agree. It's all about expectations. And that loss of confidence, which <laughs> which wasn't helped maybe by these numbers, even though they were pretty good, as Richard said, has affected a lot of them. And, you know, so many of the companies that we deal with depend on that confidence uh, in terms of their business, not only consumer confidence, but investor confidence as well. Doesn't mean it's gone. China is, is still there, but it's expectations. And especially given what's happening in the rest of the world, uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of confidence put in China at one point, and it's not being rewarded. This may change, and we think it will change over time. It will be a little bit better next year, we we hope. But there are a lot of other factors we mentioned that are, that are in the mix. But at the same time, it's affecting the Chinese economy. It's affecting what, what companies are going to do in China as well. It seems to be the Chinese consumer is a rather reluctant consumer at the moment. They are spending, they are opening their wallets, but they're being rather careful about how they do it, what they spend it on. They like um, leisure and going out to restaurants, uh, but they don't like spending on big ticket items. Well, I have one number too that well, maybe Richard has seen too, but the quarterly, quarterly household survey in China suggests that households have lifted their savings to 35% of their disposable income from about an average of 29% from 2010 to 2019. That's pretty substantial. And it suggests, well, maybe like the like the people in the UK, Richard. <laughs> they feel a little bit <laughs> I don't better. know if they have any savings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just spend, spend, spend. Yeah. Isn't part of the problem for China, though, is that if you want to get people to take those savings out of bank accounts, you've got to have some products for them to put it into. And there just isn't enough product uh, for, for this, this level of savings to go to. That's part of it. But also it's partly I keep mentioning this, but it's it's the long COVID. I don't mean the, the disease, but the economic impact of that in terms of confidence, in terms of housing uh, medical care, education, uh, part of HUCO reform, which is which has been delayed again and again. Mm-hmm. So that all feeds into it. Eventually, this we think this this might become good and ease, but certainly this year and and into next year, it's it's an issue. But the government well, say, say this only halfway in jest, but perhaps the best way for the Chinese authorities to get people to save is to bring in some form of, of inheritance tax or death duties because. All those old people in restaurants are busy uh, uh, having lunch and dinner because they're trying to spend the money before the government gets it. 
Uh, or maybe cut taxes that would help wouldn't it that would help get income growth up which then makes people when they see their income going up they feel more like spending well i think liz trust tried that and it didn't work yeah but china's got the money she hasn't that's right and she also was going to do it on the corporate side not the individual side yes yep barry let let me ask you i think the sorry carry on Barry. i I was just going to say that the, the real positive thing has to be that president xi met with Senator Schumer. And then you could say as a secondary that Senator Schumer is there with a Republican and Democratic delegation. So these people can talk because there's so much anti-China sentiment in the states. The mere fact that this delegation is in China is a huge plus. And they didn't expect to see President Xi. So they did. That's exceedingly positive. Are they going to come back, though, to the U.S. with a change of approach to China as a result of this? I doubt it. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't I don't I don't I don't think so either. I think Israel's another issue in this. And China's made some state. Of course, Senator Schumer raised that issue with President Xi. And um, and then President Xi made a statement calling for the independence of 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 the Palestinians, which is not a new which is not a new proposal. But he didn't say anything else. Mm-hmm. In, in the statement about what's going on in Israel, even though Israel and China, as you probably know, have very close relations uh, economically and, and even militarily. But at the same time, that's going to roil a lot of a lot of people in the states, especially given it's a it's campaign season and they're, they've already blamed the Biden administration for uh, for what's happening in Israel. Barry, this is a real dilemma for the U.S., isn't it? Because President Biden was hoping to get uh, some sort of rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and and Israel, some sort of peace agreement. And then as a result, that would help uh, the Saudis take action to bring down the oil price. This all looks in tatters, doesn't it? Yes, it is in tatters. I don't think it's not going to be revived, not as as Mark says, in this election year that's beginning. It's uh, it's a mess. The Republicans are a mess because they can't elect a speaker. Although I think now this crisis in the Middle East is probably an impetus to do something. Kevin McCarthy says he's available. Uh, some people say there'll be an action and a resolution by Thursday. We shall see. That's probably heroic thinking. For the Biden administration, they're completely befuddled. They did this Iran money deal for hostages. And it was very significant that Secretary of State Blinken says we have no evidence as yet that Iran is behind this. This is a statement that goes against the conservative and you could say almost all media observers who think that, of course, Iran planned this whole thing. So I think the Americans are being careful. But for the Biden administration, it's a real dilemma. The risk is, I suppose, of an escalation, isn't it? Particularly if Iran is shown to have been behind this. That's where the, the problems will come. If it's just contained to Israel and Gaza, as bad as it is, maybe there's not such global repercussions. But, but there's always the chance well, of these got, things getting out of hand. Of course, because you've got the northern frontier of Israel with Syria in a mess. What if the Israelis were to attack the Iranians? You know, what would be the implications of that? The Turks are very active in this diplomacy. Then we shouldn't forget about the Ukraine war. So I, I think there's it's a, it's a real mess. And of course, it's a huge tragedy. The loss of life is appalling. Yeah, it's terrible. And in fact, the oil producing states as well. So 
there is a real danger of this blowing out of control. On the other hand, there are also some counterbalancing factors. You know, you've got the influence of Saudi Arabia in there, and it looks as if there was some progress being made on that stage. Um, and of course, the Saudi Arabians, you know, if there's one uh, country that the Saudis are, are more suspicious of than Israel, it's Iran. So it's almost a case of my enemy's enemy is, is my friend. So although the whole thing looks extremely unstable, there's a kind of stable instability in there with all of these different forces acting against each other, um, which is why I think at the moment things may not um, develop uh, as seriously as, as people might fear, uh, that you have these different elements that are counteracting each other. I think, uh, I hope you're right, Richard, because uh, for President Xi, it's also a dilemma. He's very proud of the fact that China brokered this rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But there are many probably many in Iran who don't want Saudi to have a rapprochement with Israel. So, I mean, this, and if that was the intention, they've succeeded. But, you know, that part of the part of the mix. And Saudi, I, I agree with Richard, uh, is, is a key player in this because they don't want any of this to blow up and they're going to do everything they can. Egypt, not as powerful, but the same, the same. And they have a special interest since they're right next to the action. So, uh, so you know, they may be able to, to do something, but it's unclear if anybody's, anybody's listening. We'll see. Yeah, it's a much wider game uh, yeah. than just Israel-Hamas. What, what are the markets and economic implications of this? We're seeing the main reaction coming in the oil markets. Brent crude oil, it was up over 5% at one stage, settled 4.2% higher. Um, I'm wondering how much of that is a knee-jerk reaction, because... In neither side in the conflict is a major oil player, but I suppose maybe it's pricing in some risk that Iran gets involved somehow, which is obviously a, a major oil player. But we do seem to be seeing, Richard, the, the main reaction at the moment uh, coming in the oil markets. Yes, I think that's partly because the oil markets are open on a Sunday. So, you know, you could see the market move. And by Monday, you know, people had sort of rationalised things a bit better and, and the equity markets, in, in fact, were were slightly up in New York, although they were down in, in Europe. And that, I think, reflects also the fact that people were were putting this together. Yes, at the moment, it does seem to be relatively limited in economic terms. And I think the other thing, if this is what you see with these narratives, is we were very worried that Ukraine would cause a, some sort of serious global recession. It hasn't done. So if we see another skirmish elsewhere in the world, it has to be much, much bigger than the whole Ukraine issue. Um, for it to to be of a concern, and I I think we, with due respect to uh, the 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 pot that's boiled for you know thousands of years in the Middle East, this is not big enough to cause that kind of criticality in the markets just yet. Stop. Yeah, just to accentuate Richard's optimism, the market reaction has been positive. We haven't seen any huge spike in oil. I mean, in the 80s, so what? That's not a problem. And look at the market. The U.S. market was down, but it closed higher. So the initial reaction is that this can be contained and that, as Richard says, maybe it's not going to get out of hand. We got in the markets the expected reaction. Oil and gas stocks were higher, travel and leisure stocks were lower. But as you say, Barry, the overall traders didn't seem to be too concerned about this. How much do you think the Fed is going to be concerned about this jump in oil prices? Although it was off last week, over the last three months, 
uh, oil prices are up almost 30%. Is, is the Fed going to be concerned about the inflationary implications of that? A Fed person would say, of course. But I don't think there's going to be a rate increase in November, but they will be data dependent. And uh, so we shall see. Some say there will be. This This becomes part of the drama. Mm. We, we had also, those- oil, oil went up, but it's also come down a lot in the last few months. So if you look at where we are price-wise, we're pretty well where we were well, three or four months ago. And we did have some Fed officials speaking yesterday. They were pretty dovish, actually. Philip Jefferson, who's the, the Fed's second in command, he said uh, the Fed needs to proceed cautious, uh, carefully with its forthcoming rate decisions. And he emphasised that he would incorporate rising Treasury yields into his assessment of whether tighter monetary policy is necessary. And Dallas Fed President Laurie Logan went even further. She said that the, the recent tightening in financial conditions could offset the need for the central bank to take um, further action. We're seeing some quite dovish comments, Barry, aren't we, from, uh, from Fed officials at the moment about this? Hey, I think the pain is beginning. And if the pain hasn't begun, people fear it just a little bit down the track. So that's why I think, uh, essentially, this is a delicate time. And let me finally, Richard, come back to ask you again to put your historian hat on the bond markets. This is the biggest uh, bear market in bonds, in treasury bonds in history. Uh, now, we've seen over the last three years, if you were an investor in bonds, you would have lost nearly half of your money um, by now. Um, this this is something, again, that's quite historic, isn't it? It is historic. And yet, uh, you know, the extraordinary thing is the markets haven't reacted very badly. Um, again, I think it's because there's a lot of liquidity in the markets and, you know, the, the, the sheer weight of money is holding things up. Um, but we have had an extraordinary, unusual run in the bond markets over the last 30 years, and, uh, and that game is over. But bonds are still an important investment for many because at the end of the day, uh, you hope to get your money back uh, as long as the credit is there. And, and in, in most cases, you, you will get your money back. And that puts bonds on a different risk level to equities where... Uh, you could lose a lot of your money. Uh, so I think the bond market is still going to be a very, very important in- investment tool. Um, we've seen losses there recently, but I think at the moment it looks as if most markets, um, most pension funds, uh, they can just take it on the nose at the moment, and they have no choice. And it has global implications, doesn't it? Because every single financial asset in the world is ultimately priced off uh, the treasury yield. Yes, price off in interest rates. And, and that's been the one uh, truth, if you like, that's held through most financial um, theory over, over you know, since we've had modern uh, financial theory, uh, that interest rates really are critical. Um, but it also looks as if other elements come in there, other narratives come in there that actually work the other way uh, and stop these things being, maybe being quite so bad at certain times. And then at critical times actually increase worries and increase concerns. Um, so I think, you know, once again, uh, this time it's different. Um, and um, uh, maybe the markets are able just to uh, keep holding on as they are. OK, well, thank you very much. Uh, you heard there Dr. Richard Harris, Chief Executive Officer at Port Shelter Investment Management. Mark Michelson, who is Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Barry Wood, our US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C. Peter Lewis is
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Enzio Von File, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Sean Debeau, CIO at Interlink Asia Pacific. With a view from Japan is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Have a good Tuesday. Money Talk.